Wildwood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Now in our nation, the era of the 1960s was an era of cultural revolution. And it's amazing to me that the 60s are now 40 to 45 years ago. It's amazing because I lived through the 60s. I just can't believe it's been that many years since that era in our country. But if you weren't there during the 60s, I will remind you that it was a time of counterculture revolution in America. And that effect and that impact, that idea of revolution even invaded the believing community because the believing community liked to talk about the Jesus revolution. And also, for example, in June 21st, 1971, the Time magazine came out with on its cover, the Jesus revolution. And so as believers, we were talking a lot in that era about the ultimate revolution. Now, there was a lot in the 60s if you were alive, you'll know this, that was quite a bit off base. But one thing that was accurate about that time is that Jesus calls his followers to a counterculture revolution. And he's really doing that in the book, book of Philippians in the second chapter. In fact, I've entitled the message today, Jesus' Counterculture Revolution. Or we could subtitle it, To Toot or Not To Toot. Now, when I say that, uh, the tooting I'm talking about is tooting our own horn. The culture says that we are to toot our own horn. Jesus comes along and he says to us, no, you are not to toot your own horn. As we ended our study of chapter number one, we ended with this idea that as believers, as followers of Jesus, we are to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. As we come to chapter 2, he is going to unpack that idea further. What does it mean for us to live a life that is worthy of the gospel? And if you have your Bibles open, I would like to read the first four verses of chapter 2 and invite you to follow along in your Bible as I read what Paul says here. He says, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit... If any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. We have entitled our study of Philippians, Spiritual Essentials for a Joyful Life. And as we come to chapter 2, the essential that he wants to bring up is an essential mindset that we are to have as we follow Jesus. So we want to talk about Jesus' counterculture revolution, and we're going to see three parts to this. Number one, we see the motivation 
for our involvement in this counterculture revolution. We see that in verse 1. And then we see in verses 2 to 4 the call to this counterculture revolution. And then we see the example of the counterculture revolution in verses 5 and following. So what we're going to do today is really have part one of Jesus' counterculture revolution. We're going to look at the first two aspects, the motivation and the call, and then next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the example in verses 5 and following. So we have Jesus' counterculture revolution. What is the motivation, though, for me to participate in this? Well, we see it in verse 1, and you'll notice verse 1 begins with the word, therefore. He is connecting it back to what he'd been talking about before, previously, how we are to live a life worthy of the gospel. But I want you to see that there is a fourfold motivation here. And you have four phrases that in the New American Standard begin with the word if. If, 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 if. And in the original language, there's different ways to construct a conditional or if clause. This is one that was, is called the first class condition. That means, even though it looks like an if to us, it is assumed to be true. Or we could accurately translate it since. Since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is consolation of love, since there is fellowship of the Spirit, since there is affection and compassion. This is our motivation. And let's look at it. The first part is where he says, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any encouragement that has come to us by belonging to Christ, that becomes a motivation to be a part of the counterculture revolution. I really believe that what Paul is telling the believers here, and he's telling us this, is this, remember your spiritual story. And those in, in Philippi had a spiritual story. You remember the jailer, the guy was just doing his job and guarding the prisoners in the cell, and there was this giant earthquake, and, and the walls came tumbling down, and the prisoners were released, and, and he was saying to them, what must I do to be saved, to be delivered from judgment? And suddenly, the guy was just doing his job, comes to know the living God personally. And then there was the story, of course, of the slave girl who had been possessed by demons and was being used to make money for individuals, and, and she was delivered from all of that, and that was her spiritual story. And really what Paul is saying, if we're going to participate in this counterculture revolution, is we need to remember our encouragement from belonging to Christ. We need to remember our spiritual story. And that's a good thing to do from time to time. I remember my spiritual story. I can still remember uh, as a young man being very troubled about my future. I was very concerned about not only the future of the country, but my future beyond the door of death. And there was just this uncertainty, this really wall of uncertainty that was all around me. And then, hearing about Christ, I chose to turn to Him and to trust in Him. And you know what? It changed. My life changed because of that. I felt safe. I felt secure. There was a sense of certainty. No matter what happened to me, I knew what my ultimate destiny was going to be. And so part of the motivation of being involved in the counterculture revolution is that we are to remember our spiritual story. 
And that would be a good thing for you to do. Just to let your mind go back and remember how God has worked in your life. Second part of our motivation, he says, if there's any consolation of love, the New Living Translation says, if there's any comfort from his love. And there is. <laughs> he loves you unconditionally. That means warts and all. That means with all your shortcomings. That means with all of our mess-ups. There is incredible consolation and comfort from the love of Jesus Christ the way he loves us. And then he says, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, and there is, if there's any partnership in the Spirit, you know what an amazing thing is, I hope you never get over it, and that is this, that God himself, through the person of the Holy Spirit, lives inside of you if you know him personally. That, men and women, is awesomely amazing. And he is there, called as our helper, present with us forever, empowering us, and producing his spiritual fruit in our life. You see, if there is any encouragement from belonging to Christ, and any comfort from his love, and any fellowship from the Spirit in the way he's working, and then he says, this is the fourth part of this, he said, if there's any affection, the NIV says tenderness and compassion, and there is. When you look at God, that's, that's what he is. He is a God of tenderness and compassion. Just think about his mercy. You and I to not receive what we deserve to receive. He extends mercy to us. And his grace, we get far more than we ever deserve because we have a God who is tender and gracious to us. And we need to understand, see, here's what Paul's saying, those are the incentives for action on our part. Those are the things that motivate us to respond to the call in verses 2 to 4. Now, here's what I want you to see. That call that is being given to you and to me has dual prongs to it. One is it's a call to unity. We see that in verse 2. And secondly, it is a call to humility and unselfishness, and we see that in verses 3 and 4. So when we're talking about being involved in Jesus' counterculture revolution, we've seen what the motivation is. Now we want to see what the call is. And the first part is a call to unity. Look at verse 2. He says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Now, I want you to see what he's doing here. He's calling us as followers of Jesus to unity, but not to uniformity. There's a difference between the two. He's not calling us to be clones. He's not calling us to dress alike and to think alike and to sound alike. He's not calling us all to be like me, especially the guys, you know, where your hair is gelled back. Now, the world would be a better place if that were true for all of us males. And let me tell you guys, you would be doubly debonair if your hair was gelled back. But that's not what he's calling us to. He's not calling us to uniformity. He's calling us to unity. When we went to the uh, Weekend to Remember this time in Corpus Christi, my co-speaker 
who you prayed for, never really had a chance to meet, was a guy by the name of Greg Speck. I've spoken with Greg before. Some of you, I've described Greg Speck this way. Greg Speck is Dave Robbins on steroids, okay? Uh, If you know our youth pastor, Dave Robbins, and that's Greg Speck. See, I don't like liver, and I absolutely do not like raw oysters. But we have a team dinner. We went out to the team dinner. And guess what? Greg Speck orders one half dozen raw oysters on the half shell as an appetizer. And I'm over there almost gagging at the other end of the table. You see, we're very different. God doesn't call us to uniformity, but he calls us to unity. And and Greg and I have different styles, but what we do throughout the weekend is we are affirming one another in our differences. That's what unity is all about. Here's the difference. Uniformity is really an external thing. Unity is really an internal thing. Uniformity is based on outward appearance. Unity is based on an attitude of the heart. Now this becomes very, very, very practical. Because you see, at Philippi, way back when Paul was writing this, And at Wildwood Community Church today, there were personality clashes. Yeah. There were strained relationships. There were frayed feelings that people had between one another. There was even friction among friends. That was going on then, and it goes on now. Because, you see, we are different But the call is not to uniformity. It's a call to unity. So what should we do if all that's true? That we have these clashes and strains and frayed feelings and friction. Well, notice what he says. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. I think really what he's saying here is that we need to be united in our core beliefs. Okay, some of us gel. Some of us don't gel. Some of us have nothing to gel. But we need to be united. (laughs) We need to be united in our core beliefs. God is the creator. We didn't show up here by accident. He created this world. That's a core belief. We have a core belief about the scriptures, about the Bible, that this is God's truth. This is the book that we follow. We have a core belief about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Heavenly Father except they come through the person of Christ. And we have a core belief that we need to be committed to about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that that is the key to changing hearts and changing lives. So you see, there's going to be some differences and there's going to be some frictions, but we need to be united in our core beliefs. And not only that, but unity means that we are maintaining the same love. That His love, this is an amazing thing that we get to have a a part of, His love flows through us to other people. And we need to maintain that. And we need to be, He goes on to say, united in spirit. The New Living Translation says, working together with one heart. We need to have that all for one and one for all mentality. That we have one another's backs. That's what unity means. It's not uniformity. 
It's unity. And then he says, lastly there in verse 2, we are to be intent on one purpose. Now what is the one purpose? Every person in this room is to have. Well, it is, I think, unveiled for us later on in chapter 2, in verse 11, in the very last number of words of that verse where it says, to the glory of God the Father. That's the one purpose we are to have, to glorify God, that He would be honored And you want to talk about revolution, men and women. You want to talk about revolution. Listen, if we are all focused and united on core beliefs and we have his love flowing through each of us and we are all for one and one for all and we have one another's backs and our whole aim is to glorify God and to make him look good, that is revolutionary. Do you know that a united church family is a formidable force in the culture of this world? So let me just ask you a personal question that you can ponder. How on board with this are you? How in line with this are you? Are you focused on being united in our core beliefs and and allowing his love to flow through us, being all for one and one for all, and just have the whole aim of everything that goes on in your life to glorify God and make him look good? I wonder if that would make a difference. I read this week about a church in Dallas, Texas, pretty large community in our country, And this church in Dallas had a very public and very bitter rift. And what happened is the church was virtually splitting right down the middle, two different sides, and each side filed a lawsuit to dispossess the other group from the church facilities. So you see what's going on here. You had this huge church split. This side filed lawsuit that this side would not have any access to the church facilities anymore, and this side did exactly the same thing. And of course, eventually, through some legal decisions, one side lost. So they all packed up, left, and of course went and started another church. Now here's what's interesting about that. Some people who were investigating the situation said they wanted to trace back to to where this all had begun. How did this happen that a church would split in half like this and file a lawsuit against one another to throw the other group out? You know what they found out? They traced it back to a church fellowship meal where one elder received a smaller slice of ham than the child who was next to him in the line. And men and women, that's how it all started. Now let me ask you the question. Would it have ended differently if that church family had been united and focused on their core beliefs, that they had been allowing his love to flow through them to other people, that they had been all for one and one for all, and their whole aim was to glorify God? And to make him look good. Yeah. 
that whole story wouldn't have even happened. And by the way, I want to say this. Heaven's the Betsy. When we have a newcomer lunch afterwards, could we be very careful about the size of the servings, you know? We don't want anything like that going on here. You can have more than me, all right, if you're coming. So we have a call here as part of this counter-revolution. It's a call to unity, but it also is a call to humility and unselfishness. Notice verses 3 and 4. It's part of this counterculture revolution. He says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, I think we can all agree and recognize the selfishness in our culture, right? We all recognize that there is selfishness in our culture. It's the me, myself, and I syndrome. It's the thing that Toby Keith sings about when he says, I want to talk about me, 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 me. There is selfishness in our culture. The culture is saying you've got to look out for number one. Look, it's dog-eat-dog out there. You claw your way to the front. You go get the biggest piece of ham. You know, that's the culture tells us that. Grab for all the gusto you can get. Not what anyone else can get, but what you can get. There is selfishness in our culture, and I think we recognize that. But we also need to recognize the selfishness that's in our flesh. You know, it was in 2002, in the beginning of the year, when we first came into this facility. And I was just recovering from very significant surgery in my life, uh, so I wasn't part of the picture we took, but we gathered everybody together as best we could, and we took this giant picture. Now, let's just imagine we were going to do the same thing today. We were going to just time out on the service, let's get everybody gathered together and stand here, and we'll take a picture of everybody. Now, if we did that, and then we showed you the picture... Who is the first person that you would look for? Yourself, right? Because we're selfish. We like things our way. Have you ever noticed that in your life? And I think it would just be therapeutic for all of us just to go ahead and admit it right now, that, that I am selfish. Let's just say that out loud together. We're going to say, I am selfish. Are you ready? Here we go. I am selfish. Let's do it one more time. I am selfish. Don't you just feel better now? Confession is good for the soul. We recognize selfishness in our culture. We need to recognize selfishness in our flesh. Now, with that in mind, did you realize how radical the revolution is that Jesus is calling us to here? Look again at what it says in verses 3 and 4. He says, do nothing from selfishness. Nothing. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. What does he mean by empty conceit? Well, I think it's illustrated well by the Irish playwright Oscar Wilde. One time he was crossing a border, and he was asked, do you have anything to declare? And he said, only my genius. That really, men and women, is empty conceit, where we're just sort of pumped by our own vanity. 
Many of you have heard about onomatopoeic words. They're words that sound like what they describe. And there's an onomatopoeic word that Paul uses a lot in the book of 1 Corinthians. In fact, it's six times in the book of 1 Corinthians. And it's the word fusiao. And you just... It, and it really is translated most frequently puffed up. It, it's a word that, like if you took a balloon and you go... You almost hear that fusiao going on. And the idea of empty conceit is this, that as you take something like this and you blow it up bigger, the emptiness on the inside just keeps getting bigger because that's all that's in here. See, someone's pumped up with their own vanity. And what he's really saying is that when we live out our life, we do nothing from selfishness or from empty conceit. But notice verse 3, he says, But rather, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Humility is something that ought to mark your life and mine as a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, in 1 Peter 5, 5, Peter writes those believers, and he says, clothe yourself with humility, put on those clothes towards one another. Clothe yourself with humility towards one another. Now, humility is often misconstrued. Humility, biblically, doesn't mean that we have a worthless mindset about ourselves. I'm just nothing. I'm dirt. I'm trash. I'm like a worm that should be groveling all the time. That's not what humility means. Humility does, does not mean that we think less of ourself. It means that we think of ourself less. Humility is not self-hate. Humility, biblically, is self-forgetfulness. Uh, humility is not where I say, hey, I'm MVP of the Humble Bowl, baby. <laughs> yeah, you better believe it. And I'm proud to say that I've always managed to maintain my humility very well. That's not what it means. And so you say, well, what does it really look like? What does humility look like? Well, we have right here in, in these verses the practical outworking of what humility looks like. It's right here. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Here it comes. Look at it. Don't miss it. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. That's what humility does. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. The New Living Translation says, don't only think about your own affairs, but also the interests of others. You might jot down Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Very, very interesting statement that he writes to the believers there. He says this, Give preference to one another in honor. Now that's a counter-culture revolutionary statement. Give preference to one another in honor. Jesus said it this way, If you lose your life, you'll find it. There was a Scottish pastor who described an amazing thing that he noticed that happened during the era of World War II. He said he knew sanitariums, both in England and in Scotland, 
that during the era of World War II had to close because of a lack of people in them, a lack of patience in them. And what had happened to many of those patients is that opportunities to help others, like doing air raids, virtually cured them. In fact, at one time, he pointed out a woman who was down in the, the third basement of a church which was serving as an air raid shelter in a Red Cross depot, and he said, look at that woman over there. She was wearing the uniform of a volunteer nurse. He said, two years ago, that woman was an invalid and a problem to herself and to everyone else. He said, you ought to watch her now when the siren sounds and instantly she goes on the job, often working all night long, caring for the injured and the dying. And he said, everyone loves her now. She began to immerse herself in a cause and she found life. She got outside of herself. She became oriented to serving others. She became focused on the interests and the needs of others. And it changed her life. I want you to think about it for just a moment. Can you imagine for a moment the revolution that would happen in our culture and in our town and the far-reaching impact it would have if people started to do this? This is radical cultural revolution. If people began to regard one another as more important than themselves and not just looking out for their own interests but also for the interests of others, would that make a difference? Oh, you better believe it. Think about the business world for a moment. Would that have a far-reaching impact in the business world? If business leaders were not looking out for their own personal interests but also for the interests of others, if they were regarding the people that they were working with as more important than themselves, would that make a difference? We all know a lot of what's been going on in the culture. Just imagine the revolutionary change that would bring. Would it make a difference in the political arena? Would it make a difference in the political arena if the leaders in the political arena regarded other people as more important than themselves? And if they were looking out not for their own personal interests but also for the interests of others, my goodness, we wouldn't recognize the place. Would it make a difference and have a far-reaching impact in your neighborhood? If everybody in your neighborhood regarded everyone else as more important than themselves, and if they were looking out not only for their own interests but also for the interests of their neighbors, would that make any kind of a difference? Would it make a difference in our marriages and in our families? If we had children saying that their brothers and sisters were more important than themselves and they were more interested in the interests and the needs of their brothers and sisters, what about husbands and wives? Would that make a difference if we were regarding one another as more important than ourselves and we were looking out for their interests rather than our own interests? Would it make any difference in the church of Jesus Christ if we were committed to regard one another as more important than me and looking out for your interests rather than my interests? Would that make a difference? Could it keep a church from a massive church split? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Can you imagine the revolution and the far-reaching impact? I want to share with you something that, that came to me secondhand. Uh, I don't know who said this, and so by the way, if you said this, you, you know, this is just between you and the Lord. You know, and he knows, but I don't really know who said this. This was said to, from this person to another person who then just told me that they had heard this, and this is what came to me secondhand that the original person, you know, we've been involved in trying to mobilize to develop a children's ministry facility that would allow us to double our ministry to young families. And this first person said this, you know what, our kids are already grown and we're really not going to be benefiting from a new children's ministry facility, so we're really not interested in, in participating in the process. And when this other person told me that they'd heard this, I mean, I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute now, so are my children grown. You know, my children aren't going to be getting personally benefited by that. But that wasn't the motivation, you see. The motivation wasn't my own interest. It was the interest of other people. We wanted to reach young families. We want to reach young hearts and see them confronted and responsive to the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And just to, be, just to be as frank with you as I could be, that kind of thinking is very out of step with Jesus' counterculture revolution that he's talking about in these verses. You see, we are aware of our own flesh tendencies, and we are aware of what our current culture is. And here's what Jesus is doing, men and women. He's calling us up. He's calling us up from where our culture is, and from where our flesh tends to focus. And he's calling us to unity, and he's calling us to humility and unselfishness. And the motivation of all of that is the encouragement that we get from belonging to Christ. And the motivation for unity and humility and unselfishness is the comfort that we get from his unconditional love for us. The empowering of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God living inside of our life, and the tenderness and the compassion and the mercy and the grace that He gives to us. That's our motivation to being called up to unity and humility and unselfishness. That is Jesus' counterculture revolution, and it is a revolution for sure. Now, as we conclude today, I want to talk about some life response that we can all have right now. And that involves, number one, set your sights, and number two, set aside. That's what we can all do. Set your sights and set aside. What do we mean by that? Well, number one, set your sights on our great example. If you don't believe me that this is what we're being called to, we want you to take some time this week to look at our great example in verses 5 to 11 in chapter 2. In fact, I want to encourage you five times this next week to read those verses. To go and read verses 5 to 11. And set your sights on our great example. If this is what our king did, why should the subjects of the king be any different? Second life response. Set aside your agenda 
this week to care for at least one other person. Now, we're not being called to just put the interests of one person over ourselves, but it's got to start somewhere. So set aside your agenda this week to care for at least one other person, to compassionately meet their needs. Now, that could mean a lot of different things. That might mean for someone that you just listen to them. It it might mean that you do what they want to do rather than what you want to do. It might mean that you give preference to them in honor. It might mean that someone has a very special need that you can meet. Maybe you can babysit for a single parent who never gets a break. But set aside your agenda to care for at least one other person. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word that occasionally rattles our cage. And Father, we know what the motivation is. The motivation is really what you've done for us, the encouragement that that we belong to you and the comfort we get from your love and the, the presence of the Spirit in our life and the compassion and the mercy and the grace and the tenderness you show us. And that motivates us to want to be committed as individuals in a church family to unity and to humility and unselfishness. Father, we would pray that you would call each one of us up this week and that we would be a part of the revolution that Jesus Christ started and he wants to continue on. And it indeed is counterculture. But it leads to incredible glory and honor that comes to our Heavenly Father when we operate this way. And we want to honor Him. We want Him to look good. And we pray these things in His name. Amen.